I was going to be a singer, you know. I started out with, uh, I've always played drums. I've always sang. But back in the 70s, you know, I, I sang a lot of lead vocals from the kit with different people. And, you know, I started sitting in with friends doing out front lead vocals and stuff like that. So I kind of had a penchant for that. I wanted to do it. That's Tommy Taylor. I'm Jamie Green. And this is Trading Force. everybody welcome back to the podcast i am your host jamie green first apologies i was at my uh 30 year 30 year college reunion this weekend up in lincoln nebraska university of nebraska so uh, this this episode's a couple days late i do apologize but between the day job and doing the, the gigs and you know doing all the other stuff in my life it, it's hard to keep all those balls in the air so this should have been out about three or four days ago i do apologize but i'm telling you it's worth the wait so uh we're going to talk to tommy taylor here in a second uh, we had an amazing chat, but before we uh, do that, let's uh, do a little housekeeping, shall we? Uh, as you know, Trading Force is a labor of love, and it is entering year five. Yes, year five of the podcast. Over 150 episodes going. I would love it if you could share and like the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give it a review. It helps getting new eyes and ears on the podcast, and that's the goal, to, to let the people know about all the great music that's out in the world. So I'm going to do this episode with Tommy, uh, then one more in December with the amazing Corey Glover of Living Color fame. I'm super stoked about this. He's got a new studio project with uh, Joseph Burka. And then I'm going to take off all of January and February, uh, spend time with the family and friends. I'm working on some new music projects for myself. And I need to recharge the batteries, folks. Uh, and I'm, so I'm going to take some vacation, some actual trips out of town. So I'll be back in March with a new slew of episodes. So hoping you continue to follow the podcast. Hang in there. I'll be back. It truly is a labor of love. I really appreciate you listening. Okay, today's guest first came on my radar way back in the early 1980s on a cassette. When I heard of Eric Johnson, I got tones on cassette, and it it blew my mind. It was great. Tommy Taylor was Eric's drummer on some of the most iconic tracks Eric's ever recorded, including Cliffs of Dover, Zap, and many, many others. Tommy has also worked with Christopher Cross and a bunch of other folks, but he's always had the itch to get out from the drum kit, get on the front of the stage and create an entire album of his music with his vocals. And he's done it. Across the Stars is out wherever you get your music in 2023. Take a listen to his album while we chat. Here is my conversation with Tommy Taylor. Tommy, thanks so much for coming on Trading Fours. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald very famously said there are no second acts in life, but you are proving him 100% wrong with this new album. It must feel really good. Well, I'm a huge, uh, uh, I have a very close verb with Fitzgerald in a lot of ways. So <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. Well, I just think it's it's such a cool thing. You know, obviously I read the, the background piece and all that stuff, but uh, it sounds like something you've been wanting to do for a very long time. And there's a lot of things in life that we wish to do, but actually to not only do it, but do it so well. Um, had a chance well, to listen to it three or four times. It's great. Well, thanks. I, you know, the thing is, I I, I was going to be a singer. You know, I started out with, uh, I've always played drums. I've always sang. But <clears throat> back in the 70s, you know, I, I sang a lot of lead vocals from the kit with different people. And, you know, I started sitting in with friends doing out front lead vocals and stuff like that. So I kind of had a penchant for that. I wanted to do it. And um, 
I kind of had a band on paper of some people who, you know, a few of them went on to do much bigger things um, that were ready to back me as a, as a out front vocalist, but I didn't really have any tunes. I mean, I was only 18, you know, so, I mean, it wasn't really there yet. We were just doing cover stuff and it's kind of like, okay, but if you want to do something where you're going to make more of a statement, you need to get out from behind the kit because I mean, it had been done. I mean, Don Henley was pretty successful doing that, you know, yeah. the drummer for Sandals. But I mean, it wasn't like mainstream. I mean, Phil Collins hadn't really quite stepped out to where he was at that point. And it was like, you know, if you're going to be a singer, you kind of need to be in front of the band. It's going to be hard to make it from behind. So I thought, well, okay, I should do that. And I had enough people interested in it that I had a, a kind of a kind of a shot to, to put something together locally. And then uh, the the manager that managed Christopher Cross called me and asked me if I wanted to kind of maybe audition to be in that group you know, by doing a demo for them, um, they were going to the studio to do a new, new set of tunes, uh, for demos, kind of like audition, do the demo for free kind of deal. And, um, so, you know, when I heard that music, I thought, wow, you know, I'm, this is kind of already there. Yeah. You know, I, I, don't need to, I mean, I could waste another five years, but if I get in on this, you know, this is going to go somewhere. So I, you know, once me thinking in my mind, it's like, well, if I could get that together, then it would be a whole lot easier to jump from here to there than to jump from the ground to there. So, uh, so I kind of got involved in that. And then that very quickly segued into Eric Johnson and some other things. And I just kind of got stymied behind the kit for about 40 something years, you know? So, um, you know, being a little older and not having as many calls and things like that, I, I kind of got disillusioned with a lot of the music I was hearing as far as the quality of the writing and production and that kind of stuff. I don't think it was really, I mean, I don't want to put anything down. I just think that the way the record business has gone, it's really difficult to kind of do full on stuff anymore. And a lot of people, you know, are recording from their bedroom, you know, on computers and stuff. And it's not as realized maybe as it should be before it hits prime time. Yeah. And, uh, I just thought, wow, I mean, I have a lot of experience and I, I don't, I'm not really finding a lot of lyrical content that I'm feeling really strong about. And I thought, well, if that's really, if that's what's on the mainstream, I think I can better that. So I started out to try, you know, I mean, and so, and it all just kind of evolved. I mean, I started uh, hanging out with, with, with some friends and playing up some things and they were like, wow, that's really good. I'm, I'm, I'm still totally you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit insecure about that aspect of my uh, career because it's not, I, I don't, I haven't practiced it. You know, I don't really know sure. that much about it. I'm just kind of like, well, I'm okay. Is it okay? You know, and they're, you know, I had good, good feedback. So I just pursued it and here we are, you know. Well, I think it's really daunting to open your mouth in front of a group of people and sing. Um, I think, you know, I just read something recently where apparently John Lennon hated his voice to the point. Right. That, yeah. No, yeah. If, if you listen, there's not one instance that he didn't double it because he didn't like the way it sounded. I'm like, wow, I think it sounds great. <laughs> so that's, yeah. it's really subjective. You know, it's, you bring up an interesting point. You know, when I first met Chris Gepper, you know, Christopher Cross, um, I, I, we were in the studio and I had done a little bit of singing in the studio, you know, lead vocals on cover demos and things like that for, for copy bands and stuff. But, you know, I would always hear my voice back and go, God, that just doesn't sound great to me. It, it, I mean, I, th I think I sound a lot better than that, you know? So in, in my head, when I'm singing or if I'm on stage, I'm thinking, wow, I'm really killing it. And you hear it across the speakers. And it's like, whoa, that's not making it, you know? And Chris's voice instantly was so magnetic coming across yeah. the speaker. If there's one thing you can't ever fault the guy for, he's just got a, a really an amazing voice. And, and, and so I just turned to him. I mean, I, I'd barely known the guy for a few hours. I said, 
how is it that your voice sounds so great coming across the speakers and mine doesn't, you know? And he said, you have to get to where you like the sound of your own voice. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of an obtuse comment, but it started a wheel spinning, you know, and I started thinking about it and it's really true. Once you can address the fact that you like the way your voice sounds, it starts to sound better and you start to be able to work with it more. It, it, that that unconsciousness of when you, you, you know, when you uh, feeling when you hear it at first, you go, ooh, uh, you know, that insecurity, you know. Um, so it is, it's, it's difficult to, to step out and sing, you know, in, in front of people and stuff. Well, I think it's because inside your head, the way that you hear yourself, it's, you know, it's different than the outside. I, you know, it's the same thing with your talking voice. What you sound like you and our conversation right now, what I'm hearing in my ear is not what, when I go back to edit this later, Tommy, it's not what I'm going to hear. Right? right. Yeah, I got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let, let's back up a little bit. When we first chatted about all this, uh, you have a, your mom was a Kansas city person. So let's talk a little bit about that. No, it's really strange because I mean, it was kind of, you know, when I saw the premise of your of your podcast, I thought, well, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, I, I got an angle here, you know, but not really. I mean, mom was a singer, you know. I mean, she kind of hid that from me. Um, I mean, not like, I mean, she always sang. Uh, she would sing along to records at the house. And I knew she played piano, but we didn't really have one. We had a pasteboard Wurlitzer because my dad thought, well, this is electric and it's quiet and it's cheap and easy to move around. <laughs> it wasn't anything like, like it, he thought it was a great history. It was like more for his convenience, I think. So, um, but, but, but she could play and, and, uh, you know, I asked her about it a little bit, you know, and, and she said, well, you know, I kind of was, uh, I was kind of on, uh, you know, kind of a sub call. You know, like if, if somebody was coming through town, like, because in those days, big, I mean, Kansas City's right there in the middle, man. If you're going yeah. anywhere, you're going through Kansas City. And yeah. uh, she lived there with her mom. Um, they had had kind of an estranged relationship when she was a kid because of a divorce. I and mean, that's, and that was pretty rare, you know, because my mom was born in 1921. They, that wasn't real common. And so, uh, you know, she and her mom ended up being more like sisters and stuff. They were like double date and stuff, you know, because uh, my, my grandmother was pretty young when she had my mom. And so, you know, it was kind of more of a, you know, they were kind of on the town a lot together with, with you know, dating and going to clubs and things like that. But but people knew she could sing and she could read music. So she would get a call to be a sub is what she told me. You know, um, if somebody was ill or something, they knew she could fill the bill. So she would get calls like that. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, she really was a little more serious than that because I found pictures, you know, in, in her archives of her, you know, with two other gals in gowns, which I'm sure she made because she was a seamstress, you know, standing around a, an a old microphone with a suspension thing on a stage with guys with, you know, bandstand, you know, orchestra music says with the logo on them and, a, mm -hmm. you know, on a piano. So, I mean, she was a a member of a vocal group, obviously, that either was the feature or backed a certain, you know, band leader at one time. So, I mean, I think it was more than just I used to sit in sometimes, you know. So I guess that was pretty much around the, around the Kansas City area. Probably would be probably during the war, for, you know, mm -hmm. the 40s for sure. It was such a great music town. There were so many fabulous venues and you know it's like anything it's like whether it's seattle and everybody going to seattle in the 90s or the 80s they went to austin yep. or wherever uh kansas city i mean most of the people that could be famous from the kansas city sound were not native you know count basie was from new jersey originally and right uh, right 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 but yeah. it was a hub you know there was a scene so it's like okay you know, people are usually looking for an audience and work 
You know, it's like, okay, well, where, where are the people at that are going to like more of the kind of thing that I'm doing? And is there an opportunity, opportunity for me to play there regularly and get paid? So I think Kansas City provided that, during, especially in the 40s, you know, during the big yeah. band era. Sure, definitely. Yeah, if you really want to nerd out to my listener, I mean, most of my listeners are in Kansas City, Tommy, but they're all over. Um, it's really yeah. fun to go back and look at the newspapers from that era in Kansas City how many cool venues this town used to have uh these beautiful oh, yeah. ballrooms it's so sad we've lost so many ballrooms in this country these are gorgeous places. well yeah i mean I, you know i, I mean it, i mean for you know i guess kids today they don't really think about it much you know i mean because it's, they, they just they're used to what they grew up with and you know but i mean that's kind of you know there's a if you open the you know, my CD when it comes out, when you can actually see the artwork, you know, right now we're just in digital, but, but like, you know, the whole thing started off as kind of a, you know, like, Hey, check out what we've lost. You know, I mean, the statement is, uh, you know, the, the, the original title of the album was called what to say of the gold. And a, a person suggested to me that it might be a bit obtuse and not easy to remember. So I changed it to what across the stars, which is, has a song on the record title that so we have a title track but the idea was like you know kind of a very literary thing you know uh you know in the aftermath men would bear uh, witness to all that was lost what say of the gold you know it's like we as a culture yeah sure we've made some improvements maybe but what do we lose in the in the decorum and the elegance and the and the i mean that's always a real slippery slope because that was true for some people and maybe not true for other people, you know, who didn't really have the wherewithal to be in those types of situations. But, you know, I mean, I don't know that I want to go back to the rigidity of, of, of the twenties and thirties. I mean, although the twenties were pretty, pretty loose, but you know, the, but everybody dressed nice and everybody, when they went out, they had a reason to look good and, and to present themselves. And now everybody just kind of goes out in shorts and, you know, and I'm guilty, you know, I'm, but, but, you know, they're just, it, it's so haphazard, you know, and there's certainly and the, an and, elegance to that era. I mean, there's an uh, elegance to it. I so. mean, if you can't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think anybody, anybody with a brain can see it. I, I, I mean, it's sad to me. I it really, I mean, I, I think, you know, Cause I mean, I can see my, my mother and her friends and, and, and the people of that era was like, okay, well, we're going to go out, you know, tonight we're going to get, you know, we're going to get, get fixed up and we're going to go out and dance and we're going to see some great music and we're going to enjoy a really a special time. You know, and now you go to a bar and it's kind of half empty and nobody cares, you know, I mean, you know, I, it, I mean, I don't want to paint a real dismal picture, but it's just, it's, I think I think it's lost a bit, you know. It's nice to remember those things and not to and not to lose them, to try and preserve sure. them. They're Absolutely. Like yeah, I felt like this album, a lot of it was would you say wistful's fair? There's some some wistfulness to this album. Some of the I think so, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a I mean, yeah, I mean I mean I have a little bit of a unique perspective, James, you know, because I mean, most people when they start writing music you know, they're young, they're probably in their, you know, if they're not in their teens, they're in their their, their early 20s to, to barely 30. You know, most people that made it in the old days, that's kind of where they were coming from. So they're looking at, man, I've got this huge thing coming in front of me and look at what I'm going to do and how it's going to work out and all my pursuits and blah, the world is this. And I'm looking from my perspective, I'm 66 now. And, you know, I started, I didn't write a song until I was 50. 
really pretty much. So I'm looking at like, okay, I went through all that. You know, I went, I, I jumped in the blender and they poured me out into the glass. And now I'm kind of looking back at like, wow, look what happened. You know, look, look at what, look at what's gone on. And it's, there's a little bit of a, a nostalgic, you know, uh, you know, wistfulness and that for sure. Definitely. It's, it's a little, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it, there's some melancholia there for sure, you know, but sure. that's kind of also what needed to be said, you know, that's another, that's another, you know, kind of Fitzgerald idiom, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you don't write because you want to say something, you write because you have something to say. Yeah. And that's I love that you're, I love that you're a reader, Tommy, because one of the things I think you're 170 episodes, I have lost, I've had so many now I'm losing track. I mean, um, but a lot of really great songwriters, uh, whether it's, you know, Austin's own Ian Moore, um, a lot of they're voracious readers, which I think is really interesting. Well, I was, I was, I mean, I, I don't read as much as I should. Uh, I do go back and revisit some things. Um, but, but I agree. And, you know, even with young songwriters, you know, I've, I've helped, you know, I've mentored a few writers and, and, you know, the question always comes up, especially when they're really young, <clears throat> say you have a really, a really great budding songwriter is maybe, you know, early teens and, and they don't really have the life experience, you know, to really write poignant material so it's often sounds very embryonic you know lyrically and i go you know just because you haven't had the life experience doesn't mean there isn't books full of stories by people who have and you know if you really want to learn how the language works uh and how metaphor works and how to utilize those tools to make a really deep lyric in your song it's a good idea to read i mean look you don't have to start reading you know james joyce get some good American short stories. They mm. take 15, 20 minutes to read, you know, so you can get a lot out of that. Just read good authors, you know, and most if they're published, they were pretty good back then. I mean, you didn't get a, you didn't get a book deal if you weren't any good, just like you didn't get a record deal if you weren't any good. Same kind of deal, you know, it's, got, it's almost a, it's almost a, a interesting leap. You know, in the, in the, in the 19th century, you had painters, you know, everybody was a painter. Everybody wanted to become a painter. Then you wanted to become a novelist in the early 20th century and then they wanted to be you know singer songwriters musicians in the later part of the 20th century it's kind of a, they're all just similar um expressions of the same verb i think you know it's, it's yeah cre it's, it's a different version of creativity coming out there absolutely well you know it's interesting i saw your post um on facebook where i think somebody was attributing that steve lukather said that rush had unplugged toto which to your point, I, I was like you. I felt I didn't think that was. Well, fun. you know, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, and, and, and you know, and who knows when Steve said that? You know, I mean, under what duress? I mean, uh, you know, I I don't have too much of a gripe with Steve because I've I've been that guy before. You know, I mean, you just kind of he's, he's real cocky and he's really good. And, uh, and, and he may go off on a tangent and, you know, really, if he looks back and goes, Ooh, man, I probably, maybe I shouldn't have said it exactly like that. You know, maybe I didn't really mean that. Maybe I was just talking out my, the left side of my face, but I mean, yeah, you know, I had some interesting things happen with Eric where we, not with Rush, but with somebody else that were, and I, you know, and I confronted them on it years later and they went like, wow, uh, man. We don't know anything about that, but I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty weird. Our, our, our complete, you know, mic input line at the snake was completely rearranged while we went to dinner after soundcheck. 
opening for a band. <laughs> Our sound man ran up the stairs like, whoa, nothing is where we left it. You know, that's terrible. So, uh, well, the reason I brought it up was because I'm curious with you being around Neil Peart, you're both, you know, drummers, especially at that time. Did Neil was always the guy that's all he did was read. Well, yeah, Let's you see. know, the thing interesting when we played with them, Neil had it was, I think it was pretty close after his wife had that accident, mm-hmm. I think, right? Didn't she have an accident? They lost yeah, the she, uh, the daughter the died in a car wreck first, and then the wife got cancer like within six months and died. So he lost his <laughs> then only child and his spouse within a year, which is just horrific. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't want even to be anywhere close to that, but he was very reclusive. I, I never actually spoke with Neil on that tour. Alex was our liaison and he was incredibly gregarious and just a wonderful guy. I mean, I've got his, I, I, I think I'm, if I didn't lose it on my last phone, <laughs> phone flip, I, I had his phone number. I mean, I would just call him. He, he was in, they came to Austin on that last tour and, you know, I, I rang him up and went down and, and we hung out. He's, he's a swell guy. And again, he's kind of in, in between. He's, he's a little bit more, uh, he keeps himself a bit more, uh, but when he's around people he's comfortable with, he's just really great, really super open. Neil and I have strangely a lot of similarities, you know, um, that, and we don't, like I said, we don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a, I, I had a BMW motorcycle. I rode around, you know, the same kind of thing. And, and, uh, you know, we both started endorsing Ludwig about the same time. And, you know, it's funny because they had the, that album cover with the predict, uh, televisions on the front right yeah. I, I bought one of those televisions right about the time that album came out and i'm not a, i didn't follow them at all really i mean it was, they were a little bit after my sort of um you know where you garner your favorites in life you know i mean they, they were just post when i'd already had my cup pretty full you know sure no i think that's very fair it's interesting i saw that tour uh, oh cool and that's you one played- of those what's that played in Topeka I remember that was one of our first dates was Topeka Kansas yeah I saw you guys in Omaha um, uh-huh. oh, yeah I remember yeah we did that too but it's such an inter- it's one of those act things you're like at first blush right first blush you're like those are you know I mean Rush is a prog rock band Eric is Eric I mean I don't know how you describe Eric but and you'd be like I don't know if that works but if you think about it great musicianship is great musicianship and I think that's why that tour worked well, you know, it's funny because um, a, a lot of things came our way during that period of time, you know, and, and Eric and I were pretty close as far as, you know, just logistics. I mean, I had been there f- for a longer bit of time consistently. You know, we, ha- we had a few different bass player changes while I was in the group and, and stuff. But Eric and I, you know, I, a lot of times we would work some of that material up two piece because we didn't have a bass player. So he and I would be working out the arrangements. He would be kind of talking about things he wanted on the drums. And I would go, yeah, but why don't we move this chorus over here? Whatever. So a lot of those arrangements things came with just the two of us. So, you know, he would come to me with when, when things would come down the pike and, and go like, what do you think? You know, and, and I remember the first one that happened, you know, um, Avi Music Comic come out and we were kind of playing some, we were playing some 500 seat theaters and stuff, some small theaters around, maybe a little bit bigger than that. But we were... You know, we weren't we weren't we weren't stadiums at, at this point for sure. And I uh, come and said, you know, Joe called and said Steve Miller wants to uh, want, might want us to go out and play the summer with him. Do you think we should do it? And and Eric's going, 
he's going from a musical aspect because he's thinking about what Steve does, you know, and thinking about the real commercial era stuff that he's had for the, you know, several years, you know, like, you know, big old jet liner and these kinds of things, you know, I mean, I was a huge Steve Miller fan as a kid. I mean, the, from, 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 from children of the future all the way through number five, those are like, and on into, into like, um, you know, the, the Joker and, and, and that whole era, I used to go see him all the time. I, the first five records to me are some that most of his fans probably don't know anything about, but they're some of the greatest records ever made in that era. And, um, but Eric was kind of having, it's like, well, how's that going to work? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, he's going to play big old Jenner. I mean, just, I'm, I'm putting words into his mouth, but I know how he was thinking. It's like, you know, he's, he's doing, he's doing rocking me baby and big old Jenner liner. And we're going to come out and play some really eclectic guitar trio stuff. How's that going to work? I said, I think we should do it. And I said, I'll tell you why. I said, Steve Miller knows who you are. Obviously, he wouldn't be making the call if he didn't know what kind of music you played. Uh, Steve's a great guy. He's probably looking to to uh, to infuse his audience with some people that might sound might dig what we do, and also give us a shot at having a bigger audience. He's a very, I know Steve thinks like that, you know, and and it was like. Eric was really kind of on the fence, like, well, will his audience get us? I said, I don't, that's not your worry. You know, your worry is to go out there and, and sell us to them. Steve wouldn't be putting us on there if he didn't think it would work because he's a businessman. And uh, and the same thing with, happened with Rush. You know, we played with Steve and it, it jettisoned our career up 50 notches on the ladder in the period of a few weeks, you know. It was just awesome. And I, I really thank Steve for that because I, I think he knew what he was doing. I don't think he did it haphazardly. He wanted to help us. And because um, he dug the music, uh, but Rush the same thing. We were we had toured all over the states with Tragically Hip, another Canadian group, uh, opening for us. Now those guys couldn't get arrested in the states at the time. They yeah. were did the fact they could get on our tour, but they financed their entire tour with one arena date in Canada because they're that big. 50 miles across the border. So, and they're great guys and they put on a hell of a show. And, and, you know, we did that and we're, we're getting, we've never played this many dates in a row ever. You know, we're just like, kind of, we're starting, man, we're looking like Papillon at the end, you know? And, and, uh, and then the call comes out, well, and we're, we're leaving for Europe. We've got 21 days in Europe. The first time we've ever gone overseas with this act, you know, and we're, we're going over there. And, 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 uh, and then it's like, Joe calls our manager, calls him and says, hey, uh, Rush just called. They want you to open, you know, for like a month. The day you get home from Europe and Eric's just go like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> I'm never going to sleep again. You know, he said, do you think we should do it? I said, man, we need to do that, man, because that's I mean, if there was ever an audience for what we're doing, if we can get you know, their audience is really severe. They're not going to, you're not going to give it to you unless you earn it. But if you could get over on their audience, you've got, you're into grateful dead territory here. You know, this is a, you're going to have a lot. We got a lot of fans off that tour. We really did. I mean, there's no question. There's a lot of people who are diehard Eric fans that the first time they ever heard us, they'd never heard of us before they walked into that, that rush concert and saw us opening the shows. And we were very well received, you know, and they told us, you know, people that open for us have a real hard time. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and maybe, maybe Toto was one of those bands, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are. You kind of have to, you gotta, you gotta tickle the right, the right hairs on the, on the, you know, on the underbelly of the, of the audience or you're not getting anywhere in a rush concert. But the opening band thing is such a crazy dynamic because 
uh, not all the time, but there's a fair amount of time where people don't even know who the opening band is. They, well, just, they just bought the ticket for the headliner. They just waltz in. And um, and I'll probably cut this out, Tommy, but I, I, one of my favorite opening band things ever, I went, uh, you know, I'm a guitar player and I love guitar and I grew up in that era. Um, and so my one of my, my dearest friends, he flew in from Ohio. We saw Van Halen in 2012. Sure. Um, last time I saw Van Halen and I'm, I'm all, you know, I, I sit there and watch Eddie was one I would go see, but we're there and uh, cool and the gang opened up for Van Halen. Far okay. out. So this is, and this is totally Roth. Roth loves cool and the gang. So Roth wanted cool and the gang stuff. So, you know, I think one of the saddest things is when people can't ever just like grow up and like, be like, if it's good, I like it. Like I don't need to pay. So right. I'm, I'm sitting there cool and the gang comes out everybody's date whether it's their wife or their significant other every woman in the uh, arena is on the seat dancing having yeah. the time of their life and all the bros the van halen bros have got their arms folded sitting in the chair just refusing oh, to oh, enjoy it they oh, just roll reversal it's great usually it's the chicks that are on the shoulder asleep while van halen <laughs> belts the stage you know uh, it's funny that's really yeah. great yeah and the best yeah, part you know, was Go ahead. We, you know, we did we did one too. You know, we we did we opened when we were on the uh, supporting tones. You know, you know, I mean, people do pair you in very weird situations. You know, suicide situations. You know, we're on the we're playing we're playing uh, upstate New York and New Jersey in front of Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. It's not a good is. play. No, it's not a good place to be. I mean, they wanted to kill us. It was like, get the you know, like, get off the stage, push your goal. You know, it's like, hey man, uh, can we just play our? We got a little record out here. Get off! We hate you. Get out of here. You know, I mean, and, and 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 to their credit, you know, Buck and the lead singer, I forget his name. I'm sorry, it's been a long time. I love those guys. You know, they came and say, hey man, really, y'all are great. Don't worry about it. It's our audience. It wouldn't matter if you were Elvis. They they crucify you. Just play your gig and and, and enjoy yourselves. You're welcome to anything you want. You know. That's funny. So, so now that this is out, Tommy, what's what do you want to do with it? Are you going to play some shows with it? Is it purely just to have it for people in their ears? What what would you like? What do you envision for? Man, the next you know, months? you know, the business is so strange. You know, I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean. I looked around. I mean, I've had the record actually finished and mastered for a probably a good bit of two years. Um, it took a long time to record. I really started parts of it in 2002. Uh, and I really got the push uh, starting in 2016. And a lot of things happened to make it really turn out really incredibly well. And, and um, you know, but I shopped it around a little bit to places where I knew I could get my foot in the door and just, you know, nobody's going to talk to a debut artist that's 66 years old. They're just not going to do it. I mean, they're just not interested. And that's cool. I dig it. I mean, I think that music's music and I don't even, yeah, I mean, I wake up in the morning. I know I'm 66, but I don't think like that. You know, I mean, it's new music to me. I'm excited to make it. So um, basically it was figure out a way to get it out without having it just completely disappear. And, and you know, and I've, I've, that's really hard. It's really hard to know what to do. Everybody's out there to take your money, you know, to say they can help you make it go somewhere. And then you, you kind of have to roll the dice on it. I've got some good radio promotion going on out there. And, and, uh, you know, I had some help you know, trying to do a little bit more with the social media, you know, I mean, it's going to take somebody that hears it and goes, wow, 
I got to make a big deal out of this. You know, somebody at radio somewhere or somebody, you know, uh, that has a very influential playlist on Spotify, somebody's going to have to get enough people to really start hearing it to make a difference, I think. Uh, playing wise, you know, I've never gone. I mean, I played my first solo gig in April ever in 66 years, you know, so, and it was terrifying. Um, you know, I mean, I opened the show. I said, uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to see me at Safeway in my underwear. You know, I said, it may not feel like that to you, but trust me, I'm sure that's exactly what it feels like, you know, cause I mean, I've never really done it. You know, I've played guitar before I played drums. So it's not like I don't know how to play. Um, it's not second nature to me. I have to remember, and I have to remember the words of the songs. I'm not going to go up there and read on an iPad. I just can't do that. I'm just too old school. It's like, man, if you can't play your own songs, you should just stay home. So, um, but, but I, I mean, I did that. Um, it's getting used to the way the acoustic guitar performs amplified because mm -hmm. I mean, I cut all the acoustic guitar tracks and they're, you know, I mean, recorded them in a studio with mics you don't hear a lot of the extraneous noises, but once you plug that into a PA system or into a, into an acoustic guitar amplifier, it's a 335 through a Marshall stack. All yeah. of the notes that you don't think are being heard are right there in the pickup through the speakers. Like, Oh my God, I got to completely relearn how to play. Then I use multiple tunings and capos and, and, you know, then I have to worry about singing the song. It's pretty complicated for me. I'm so the main thing is to be able to give the audience something that they don't just get bored of tears at, you know? I mean, if, if it's a real um, uh, intimate setting and people are really there to hear songs and listen to the stories, I'm probably pretty okay. Uh, I don't have a lot of up-tempo material and I don't have a band So uh, at this point. So I'm just basically trying to do some shows where I might be able to sit up and do 30 minutes of, of original tunes in front of somebody, you know? Uh, to get my feet wet. I'd love to have a 10 piece band and go out and play these songs and make them sound like the record. I mean, and it's hard for me to go back. I mean, I started them with the acoustic guitar by myself in my room. So I know what that sounds like. That's how they started, but they've certainly come away since then with all of the great production and stuff that I've managed to, to, to include. So when I'm up there solo, it's kind of like, boy, I'm sure missing those strings coming in right where they're supposed to come in. And man, that piano lick, I don't have that. And, you know, that kind of stuff. So, sure. um, I, you know, I'm into anything that happens. It's, you know, anything that's, that's, that's progress that moves things forward, you know, I mean. So was this show it, by it, yourself, was that in Austin? Where did you do that? You know, I, I did. I, I started out, like I said, I had a few pieces together that I thought the first thing that happened was uh, the song fall of 93, which is a song I wrote about Doug Hopkins from the Jim Blossoms. Um, I was in a band with Lance Keltner and, and David Holt and Mark Andes from heart. And, and we were just kind of, you know, the, the guys around who didn't have anything else happening at the time. We thought it'd be kind of a cool combination. And it was, and um, the whole premise was everybody was going to write songs and sing. Well, I didn't write songs. And, and David and Lance were definitely strong songwriters and Marcus pen, penned and co-penned a few. So I thought, well, why don't you guys just write me something? I'll sing it. Cause I've got a good voice. And Lance was like, it's not going to happen like that. I went like, well, I feel more comfortable that way. I said, no, nope, you're going to write songs. I'm like, oh man, I'm just not any good at this, you know? And, and so 
you know, I, I kind of, I tried before and I, I just really, I just never felt, I've played with so many great songwriters. I felt like, man, I'm not going to have anything to add to this. You know, these guys are great and they can do it falling out of bed. Why am I going to go beat my head against the wall trying to come up with something to compete with them when I just don't have it? And, uh, but Lance was pretty insistent. And I really owe a lot to Lance for that because if it wasn't for him being so pushy, I probably wouldn't have ever done it, you know? Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that Doug Hopkins story, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how I could relate to that because it, it was, you know, I mean, I'd been pushed out of a band I was in that meant a lot to me. And, and uh, you know, I fared a little bit than Doug did. So, but, but, but I empathized with everything that he was going through at that time and all of the things that he said, you know, I, I read a bunch of back interviews. I, I like to research like that. Once I get a story going, I'm going to find out what happened. So, so I read a bunch of I was just going to say, so just to help people who are maybe are not aware of, of this story, sure. uh, he was basically the main songwriter of the Jim Blossoms. They were a huge band in the 90s. He was pushed out. I believe that he recorded the album, but by the time they went on the tour, he was out of the band. Well, no, and, and actually, he, yeah, the truth of the story is, I mean, it was Doug's band. Doug started the band. Um, he taught Bill Lynn, the bass player, how to play bass because he was his best friend and wanted him in the band. And he hired every subsequent player that was in the band. So, I mean, it was a band, but I mean, Doug was the feature. I mean, and, I mean, he was a good singer. He, he hired Robin Wilson. I mean, from what I understand, he wanted, he didn't want to sing. And that may have had something to do with his psychology or his, or, or his, his intake, but, but, you know, he was a good singer. He would do songs on stage live. And I mean, they tore Tempe up. I mean, they were, they ruled the roost in Tempe. Another scene like Kansas city, Austin, Seattle, right. you know, whatever. And, and, and so they got their deal. They got signed out of South by Southwest. Doug was uh, a little older. Uh, he was a, a sociology major. I believe had a degree from Arizona state. Um, he was a reader, you know, um, he was a, a, he had a lot of, um, mental health issues, uh, depression, anxiety, and he was a pretty serious alcoholic by that time. But I mean, he pinned, he was the premier songwriter. Jesse wrote some songs, but I mean, they're Doug Hopkins songs. That first record, especially it's Doug's tunes. And, and, you know, I mean, basically he was, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't get into his psychology that much, but I mean, there were problems and he wasn't very presentable at the sessions from what I understand. And John Hampton, the producer basically said, look, I can't use him here anymore. You know, he'd already recorded all his parts, all the parts that you heard on the record are his playing. And he said, you need guys need to figure something out about this. And the label and put pressure on them and said, basically, you know, you're in jeopardy of being dropped if you don't get rid of Doug. It's like, wow, that would be, I wouldn't want to be them. No, it's horrible. Uh, because I mean, here's your, here's your mate. I mean, yeah, you know, he's a problem and, and he knows he's a problem and there's not really any cool way to address that. He's not really very amenable to addressing it. And, but basically, I mean, you know, he got fired and then the record, you know, he, he wrote the hit singles and they're number one, you know, and he's at home in Tempe alone trying to fledgling, you maybe start a songwriting career for doing songs for other people. He had another band or two started and, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't pretty. And, and, you know, then they, the, the record company contacted and said, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to garnish your royalties until you agree your publishing royalties. Wow. I mean, he owns the songs, man, right. you know, 
it's not the record royalties, it's the publishing. That's record one. There's no budgets, there's nothing. That's what the publishing company pays you. They're going to garnish those from what I understand. I don't want to be, you know, post any incorrect light, but the labor wants him to, to then take a lesser royalty rate on the mechanical sales royalties of the record because he's no longer in the band. And in order to force him into that situation, they're going to garnish his publishing wages. Meanwhile, the band's out touring and making bank, you know, with the number one record on the charts that he has to hear every day in his car. Yeah. It's not, you're not happy. You know, and, and, I, and I read a lot of the interviews with Doug, and, and I mean, a lot of the things that he said were very similar to things that I had said when I was let go from Christopher Cross. It's a different situation, but it's not a terribly different dynamic. And, you know, Doug didn't fare well. I mean, he got f- further and further into the depression and to the, to the, um, you, know, the you know, the backbiting and the, the you know, slinging of mud back and forth between everybody. And he, he killed himself, you know. Yeah. And that's 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 an industry tragedy. It's not. It's, that's the line that no one shares the blame when when someone ends the game. It's like nobody's there to go. Wow, did we have anything to do with that? The record company. I'm not putting. I'm just saying it happens. It's not like a. I'm gonna. I'm accu- accusatory. I'm just saying it's like things like this happen and nobody cares. You know that. You know nobody. I don't. I don't think there was a big uh, memorial at A and M. You know, I, I don't think they cared. It's like, oh, so the guy's gone. Great. Uh, oh, and, and now they're now the band's not famous. Oh, well, we got a new band. We got a new guy. We got a new somebody else. We're going to exploit. You know, it's a very it cynical was, business at times. Very. Cynical. It is, and, and it's and it's also not. But there is that side of it, and that's the side of it I wanted to address. And so that that story gave me something I needed to talk. I felt like at the time I needed to talk about. It. And Lance was the first person who had actually sort of hit me to the fact that uh that that doug was wasn't in the band from the time the record came out but he had been the whole the engine of the band and uh so you know i i wrote the verses and and had things going and i i really wasn't that 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 confident in in the whole thing but i i thought the idea was good so i went to lance and i said hey i got this can you help me finish it and he he knew the story and he took the, he took what I had and he came up with the first line and the melody line, the first lyric line and melody line of the chorus. And once he sang, I said, okay, stop. I know what to do now. So I went home and finished it. So that was kind of the first thing I, I did. That was in 2002. And then moving ahead, I got in another band. Uh, I wrote a couple of tunes in the interim and I went into a studio uh, a friend of mine has and just recorded an acoustic guitar and vocal. So I'd have them, you know, logged more or less. And those became actually the basic tracks for the for the songs. I mean, that's where I started. I, the records built up from basically me doing acoustic guitar and vocal to a click track. Um, so I had another band with David Holt and Mark Andes and a guy named Gabe Rhodes, Kimmy Rhodes's uh, son. She wrote a lot of songs for Willie Nelson and stuff. And and uh, I came up with another song. Everybody's gonna let you down. And we recorded that kind of as a group thing. Mark Andes is on the first two songs that were recorded that way. And, uh, you know, Rob Muir, the keyboard player for Christopher Cross, played piano on that. And uh, he was a big mentor figure to me as a writer, you know, I mean. It's a beautiful really, piano part, by the way. Not to interrupt. It, I'm pretty- really sorry. You know, yeah, thank you. You know, it's, it's gorgeous. And that's, Rob played that first pass. He'd never heard the song before. He just came in and listened to it and ran it down. 
you know, he listened to it, kind of made some notes, and that's what he played. And, and after he finished, I said, well, God, Rob, I don't think you'd do it any better than that. You know, I think we're done. And uh, so, sadly, he was tragically killed. This is a morose kind of world here. Um, he was walking home from his uh, from a, a convenience store in Studio City uh, on uh, September 24th of 2016. Um, and he was hit by a drunk driver mm. while he was foot on foot and it was a hit and run and the guy disappeared and um so all of a sudden i'm left he was going to come down and record on summit i had just written summit i was really excited about it um and and he was great he was going to come down and visit his mom in san antonio he's going to play on that having rob there was important for me because i knew that his piano sensibilities were going to work with with my music and he liked me and we it's an it's an old old family kind of thing that way so i didn't have rob I need to record the song. I couldn't think of anybody to play. I mean, I had a lot of people on uh, on deck that would do it. There's great players in Austin. There's no dearth of great players, but I was just going, man, I need something more. You know, I need something that really is going to, that I know is going to bring this to the next level. And I know is going to really make the right kind of sentiment in the part. Cause it's really, that song is also really dependent on the piano as much of the material. So um, I just, I was thinking, I said, I need Michael Amartian. It's like, how am I going to, that's right. Okay, great. That's, that's, that's a big brain fart. How are you going to make that happen? I mean, Michael and I worked together on the Christopher Cross worker and I saw him in the early nineties in Austin for an hour or two or three or four hours. Maybe he was working at a studio, but we weren't close and I, no, I didn't have any contact information for him and neither did anybody else I knew. And the only person that did would be Chris Gepper, Christopher Cross. And I don't really like asking Chris for favors. Um, but I was kind of desperate and he had just lost Rob, who was his best friend too. And I just emailed Chris and said, Rob's gone. We're both, we've both lost a great friend, a great talent. He was going to work on my song. I need Michael Lombardi. Would you call Michael and ask him to play on my song? I didn't know if I'd ever hear from Chris really didn't. And, uh, but before I could hear back from Chris, I had an email from Michael and that started the whole process. So, I mean, in a way, you know, as tragic as Rob's passing is, and as sad as I am that I don't have him on more tracks, um, that's what really led me to getting the record finished and led me to Michael Mardian, who became the most valuable player, for sure. I mean, Rob was always after me to get my record done. You know, I mean, he said, you know, he said, look, we're not kids anymore. You know, I mean, I want to hear what you're doing. You need to get this out. It doesn't matter if nobody wants to put it out you put it out just get it done it was kind of like oh wow this is reality you know we were just talking about this the other day he's gone how much what's what's my expiration date yeah. you know am i get this done or not so that's really what pushed it forward you know? well there's a couple of things from that um i think and i'm 55 tommy for what it's worth okay. the, the joy of living longer i mean there's a there's a total joy about hey i'm still in the, i wake up every day i'm still here it's it's a wonderful thing, um, but with the, in tandem with that though is the longer you live, you lose a lot of people. Um, and I mean, last the last you know seven years for me has been like a parade. I mean, they just they they're just they're just vanishing, and it doesn't it doesn't matter what age they are. I mean, I've lost 
friends of mine who were much younger and, and friends, obviously I was always the young guy who had all the older friends. So that makes it even worse. You know, I'm, I'm still younger than they are and they're all really, you know, disappearing fast. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's tough. So before we go off of this, so let, talk a little bit about Michael because people probably don't know. I mean, he's played with, he's played on everything. Uh, well, I mean, Steely Dan, right? I'm trying to think of Donna Summer. Who else was he on? Well, well, he played, you know, I mean, that, the thing is, I mean, when we were approached in Christopher Cross for having to be a producer, we didn't know who he was. We didn't know the name. His name doesn't stand out. But once once Chris found out he played piano on the Steely Dan records, it's like, uh, okay, how can I <laughs> save face? Can you get Larry Carlton to play on my record? Well, yeah, that's not a problem. I know Larry says, okay, then you got the gig. You know, not it's not, not, Oh, you're the guy that played on those records. You got the gig. It's like, well, can you get Larry Carlton? You know, I don't want to look bad, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, Michael played, I mean, he played Ricky. Don't lose that number. He played all of the songs on Pretzel Logic pretty much. I think he played every, all the songs piano on Kagi Live, which to me is their pinnacle record. Uh, he played Asia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he's, he's a, a piano genius. It was funny because I wanted accordion on Across the Stars and I, I, I was going to have somebody play it. And I just, you know, I threw it out there so he'd know how to arrange the piano. And uh, so when he got around to do it, he said, uh, so, so you hear accordion on this, you want accordion? I said, well, yeah, I kind of to follow the guitar figure. He said, I got a pretty good sounding one here. And I was like, you play accordion? I, I wasn't thinking of having, I never, I never would ask anybody to do at that point, he's only done one piano track. It's like, I'm not trying to push the boundaries here. And he said, uh, did you ever hear of a song called uh, Piano Man by Billy Joel? <laughs> I went, yeah, I don't think there's anybody in the world that hadn't heard that song. Like, so that's one of my first gigs. So, I mean, he, he played piano. I mean, accordion was his first instrument. That's so he did that's that. But, I mean, even, even going back to, like, I mean, he played keyboards for long as a machine. He was their, he was their piano player. Um, early on. I mean, Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City by Bobby Bland. He produced that and did the string arrangements. But you would, I would, I didn't know that until like eight years ago. I mean, you know, it's just like he's done so much stuff, but he went on after Christopher Cross. He produced Rod Stewart. He produced Michael Bolton. He produced Shania Twain. He produced Vince Gill. He produced Amy Grant. I mean, uh, man, I mean, he's just played, he's played and sang with everybody. Vince Gill, I mean, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, there's the list, Glenn Campbell, you know, the, uh, the four tops, I mean, you name it. I mean, the guy's just, he sold 350 million albums, hard copy. I mean, that's like, f forget it. That's just insane, you know? Yeah. And every genre, every yeah. genre. Totally. And he's just the, and he's, and, and there's not a nicer guy in the world. You know, I mean, it just, it's just amazing to me that, you know, he, he's come on board for me like he has. It's just fantastic. Well, that's great. Um, I've really dug the album and I, I want to be caught into your time. But can we talk a little bit about Austin back in the day before all you guys were known quantities? And what was that like um, just to be playing uh, in the bars? And I mean, talk to well, me how, about that. How far do you want to go back? I mean, I, I, I'm a little different because, I mean, my dad moved there in 59. Okay. So I grew up in the, in the music scene in the 60s, you know, um, I, I mean, I, the gigs I could go to, you know, I mean, I couldn't get into the clubs, but, but you know, I mean, it, it didn't take very long. I mean, I started playing in the clubs when I was 11. Wow. So, you know, and that was a whole other scene because that's when all of the guys that ended up being the basis for the Cosmic Country 
backing, you know, guys like uh, Gary Nunn and, and John Inman. And, and you know, uh, I mean, he's not from Bob Livingston, though he's not from Austin, but all those guys like the Gonzo Band and, and, and the people that played with Jerry Jeff and all those people, it's like those guys were all rock progressive rock players. You know, John Inman and, and late depending, you know, Gary, Gary Nunn was a bass player. You know, and he played, you know, I mean, they all had like shoulder length hair and played through Marshall stacks and played like, you know, 10 minute rock opuses, uh, 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 rock opuses with, you know, three part harmonies and stuff. You don't, you know, it's like those guys, country, cosmic country started, started, sort, sort of started to come and it was like, oh, a way to make a living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like rock and roll was dead. Disco was starting to really take over the clubs. You couldn't get a gig. And it's like country was always where my dad told me the money was. And that's where those guys kind of moved over. That I mean, they could do it and they didn't hate it. And they, you know, they could still be hippies and smoke, smoke dope and be country. And it was like, okay, this works for us. But so that's kind of, you know, I mean, I, I grew up during that whole era. I mean, I, I played in all those clubs and played a lot, you know, those, all those guys were my mentors when I was a little boy. So, you know. Um, so that would have been like but, early seventies, right? I'm thinking Gary P nine, Jerry Jeff Walker, obviously Willie was big. You've got, uh, who else am I forgetting from that era? Um, uh, Steve from Holtz, Rusty, Rusty Weir, uh, yeah. Ru- Rusty, my mentor, you know, from the time I was like 12 on, you know, um, the interesting thing you said, some, what did you say? Uh, oh, Willie, you know, I, and Willie was already famous because he'd written, you know, he's a Nashville guy from in the sixties. Yeah. He moved to Boston. You know, I remember I was, in, I saw ZZ Top's show when they kind of did their big home, homecoming deal after Trace on really broke out at Jefferson stadium in, in Houston. And Willie Nelson opened. That's in a stadium at, at two o'clock in the afternoon, and we'd never heard of him. And he comes out, shotgun, Willie got it wrong, sits around in his underwear. And we're like, why are we being subjected to this? <laughs> this is miserably awful, you know? And the band was kind of real loose and funky, and, and it was like, what? Who is this, you know? How did they get on the bill? Where's Wishbone Ash? Where's Savoy <laughs> Brown? You know, I'm not, I don't want to hear this. You know, of course, then about you know a half a year later, he's the biggest thing in the world. But but I mean, I would have bet against it, you know. But you know, he struck a verb. He 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 managed to unite two cultures, which was pretty. You know, in Austin, there's a great little. You could probably get it. You had to. You probably had to pay on YouTube to watch. But there's a great little film called The Dirt Road to Psychedelia. And it was done by a guy in Austin, and he talks about that whole era in the in the mid to late '60s when the college kids started pushing the envelope, and the cowboys weren't into it. And it was rough around here. I mean, you had a little dim, uh, couple of lines of demarcation where you were cool to do and think like you wanted, but if you went outside of those, like if you wanted to go to North Lamar to Threadgill's gas station to hear to hang out with Janis Joplin and jam and do that stuff. You risk getting the crap beat out of you by some guy in a pickup truck, literally, you know. And so um, Willie made that okay, you know, somehow. he Because he was established country, but he was, you know, into the hippie kind of mentality. And so it kind of, it kind of worked and made it all okay. And it made people get along. That's great. Phenomenal, really, you know. So the, the Vaughn brothers, did you see Jimmy first? Did you see Stevie? Who did you see of those two? Well, you know, Stevie kind of followed Jimmy down here, I think. I mean, the blues culture, people know it out of proportion. It was pretty underground. 
I mean, it wasn't mainstream. I mean, the rock, the clubs were rock clubs. You, you were either playing covers or you were playing original rock. And, and, and the blues is, oh, there's those blues guys over there. Yeah, they're kind of weird. And my guitar teacher was Pat Whitefield in 1967. He was the first bass player for the Thunderbirds. And he's the archetype for Hank Hill. If you look at a picture of, 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 uh, of Pat and you see a picture of Hank Hill, I mean, he's definitely judged through him right off of, of, of the high cheekbones and the glasses, the whole thing. Uh, Pat also was the bass player for Anson Thunderbird and the Rockets, right. who Mike Judge played it with. You know, I mean, I think I think Mike followed Pat, but but anyway, that culture. You know, Jimmy played with with the Storm, and and you know, Stevie kind of came down and fall, but Stevie was kind of a rock guitar player. I mean, yeah. at first, I mean, he had a Marshall stack, and you know, he kind of played. He played a band called Stump, which later became Too Smooth. Uh, Brian Wooten, who plays with Trace Atkins now, was the guitarist that followed Stevie. Um, and so Stevie kind of was a rock guy first, a young rock guy, kind of like, you know, he would have been, you know, walking shoulder to shoulder with Eric in those days, kind of doing similar things. Um, you know, I used to go see Stevie with when, when you know, when, when, the, when Double Trouble and Triple Threat first started, when, when Mike Kindred was playing organ. And we knew Mike from Cracker Jack. Stevie had played in Cracker Jack. WC was playing bass. And WC was singing all the songs. If Mike wasn't singing, Stevie didn't sing at all, really. No, no, I mean, no. He might one or two, but you know, he was just over in the corner, you know, smoking a Bel Air, playing a Stratford Twin, kind of quiet. And uh, they added Luann, and 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 uh, you know, and that kind of she was there sometimes, and then she wasn't there, and, and everything. But I think when the, you know, the Thunderbirds record came out, it was really sparse, you know, the, those Tacoma records around or whatever they were on. And they were, you know, it was like, Jimmy had been kind of a rock star in Dallas too with the Chessman. I mean, the Chessman was kind of R&B based, but I mean, Jimmy, he played a custom Les Paul. He had here now to here and had a super Beatle and, you know, had mod clothes, you know, I mean, it all kind of got more bluesy as they got older. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, Clifford had set up Antones. I mean, I was at Antone's when uh, the night Albert King played where Stevie walked on and, and, you know, basically started playing, you know, impromptu with no, without permission, you know, I mean, so that so was a scene, but it was underground, you know? Well, that's such a, so that's a very famous, uh, people talk about this all the time. So just to, for a little back for people that don't know, Albert King was a big dude, man. Like he was pretty intimidating physically, wasn't he? I mean, that's well, Physically, and he had a reputation of not of, of harming people. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was a scary guy. He had his own bus, and you know, he just kind of like he was. I don't know. I don't want to say anything bad about. It. I don't. I don't know him, but I mean, yeah, he was a little bit of a rough guy. Steve wasn't think, a big guy. I mean, he's not a big guy. He wasn't he, a big guy. Well, he wasn't a big guy, but he also wasn't a very. He wasn't a very upfront kind of guy like that. He was a pretty mild mannered, kind of quiet. You know, I mean, he he he'd been probably you know. Uh, Cowered over by by Jimmy for enough years, where he kind of, you know, he kind of, he kind of just sheepishly would make moves. I don't think he was really that assertive, but I think it had been suggested that Albert let him sit in or something. I don't know, but I was there because I remember my my friend Dave Deer, uh, who's a guitarist, said we got to go see Albert King at Antones. I'd never been to Antones, and uh, it's packed, you know, the old club on Sixth Street, and and uh, man, we're just digging it, and like Stevie just kind of walked through the door. It's an old storefront kind of club where you walk in the front door, you walk down the side of the bar, and 
he just walked in with his amp in one hand and a guitar already plugged into the amp and the guitar over his shoulders. He walked up on stage and just plugged the amp in and started blowing, playing all Albert's stuff, you know? And Albert's like pulling the curtain over himself and stuff. And say, it's not me. That's that boy. I'm going to take a response, you know? And uh, pretty monumental event, pretty historical. I just, the luck, as luck would have it, I was there. I mean, it wasn't anything that I was like, oh, wow, I got to be here for this. Somebody just drug me down there. But yeah, you know? And, but I mean, it, 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 it ended well, I, I would have expected maybe it wouldn't, you know, uh, in the concerning the situation, but it, it no, turned out out together later. They didn't like show. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But I mean, truly, I mean, I mean, Clifford did so much for that music, you know, I mean, really, I mean, he was given guys that were working day jobs, gigs, you know, I mean, working famous people from Chicago that were working day jobs, you know, finding them and saying, no, no, I'm a pay. Come down here. Here's a new 335. I mean, here's an old 335. You know, no, you need a new guitar. Take it. I don't care. You know what I mean? He gave guitars away to those guys. He put them up. He fed them. He did everything. He paid them money, you know, where, where they couldn't get arrested anywhere else outside of Chicago. And, and so much of that happened. And then, you know, then also Stevie, man, I mean, when he finally happened, he gave that music another 60 years. Yeah, he did. It was over. Nobody cared. I mean, really nobody. Even in Austin and the blues clubs, it was very sparsely attended. It wasn't like, oh man, we got to go over and hear this. Nobody. You know, and then he blew up. It was like, wow. I mean, it was it was as big of a shock to everybody, I think, as as Christopher Cross was. Like, wow, how do we miss that? It was right here under our noses. And that's always been kind of the problem with Austin. You know, lots goes on if you're not in the What's happening right now for the mainstream? It could happen, and you wouldn't know it. You know. Yeah. Um, well, it's very, it's very kind of you to share that with me. I actually, the reason why I first picked up, I was a piano player first. Uh, okay, time. cool. Uh, and then I saw Stevie Ray, and when I was seventeen years old, uh, he blew me away. I just, he blew me. I feel bad for people who love that music and and never had the. Ch I got to see him three times, um, and it just, yeah. I, like, I, I want to do that kind of, you know. I won't be able to do that per se, but what a cool thing to, you know, so I've been playing guitar ever since then. So. Well, yeah. I have a really, one of my best friends is Ross William Perry. He's a blues guy that plays it in Minneapolis. And uh, I mean, he was, he was born in 80. So it was like, uh, like he was like 11 or something. He was going down the road with his folks and they played Stevie on the radio and he like lost his mind. You know, and he called up the radio station and said, who is that? That's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Where do I find out more about it? Well, he's dead. And it's like, oh, my God, you're kidding. <laughs> but, I mean, he literally, I mean, he, he researched every detail of that down to the notebook minutiae. You know, I mean, he knows probably more about Stevie than anybody else in the world. And, you know, I mean, he learned how to play it all just because he was so blown away by it, you know. And uh, so, I mean, I get it. I get it. It was it's always it was weird for me because... I remember when uh, I was in, uh, we were mixing Avi Music Home and they had done the mixes for that record at, at, at the, at, for, for Instep at the same studio. Dave McNair had mixed it there at the Soundcastle. And, uh, and they had a double evening bill at the Greek Theater, uh, SRV and Double Trouble. And so we were there anyway. So we went down, you know, it was an old home week there. And that was when it really first started to hit me because it's like, you know, you, you hear about it, but you're not going to those shows because you're busy doing your own shows, you know? So you don't realize the magnitude. 
you know, <clears throat> and then he sold out the Greek theater, you know, for two nights. It's like, well, that's pretty special. <laughs> I started to hit me. He's pretty big, isn't he? You know, I mean, we knew, of course. I mean, I worked on the Couldn't Stand the Weather video. I helped Chris with the drum tear down, disassembly after they filled them full of water. But, um, you know, I, I, after that, I, uh, I went to New York with a friend of mine, uh, uh, attorney friend of mine. Um, he was staying with his parents in Inglewood Cliffs and, uh, and uh, Steve Barber, a uh, friend of mine, keyboard player, had, he, he bases, he has a place in New York City, but he also goes to LA and, and Austin. And, and he said, well, you can just stay at my apartment. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, so I had his place and Bruce was over in Inglewood. So uh, we, you know, we, we know, I mean, we, we know, um, you know, Mark Proctor and Louis Messina and all these concert people, you know, the managers and all this stuff. So, you know, he just called up one of those guys and got us all tickets to go to the Steve was playing at Pier, uh, I think Pier 41 or whatever. So we're there and it's like pretty cool. We get in, you know, we got, we got passes, we got tickets and it's like, we're pretty cool. But it's like, man, I mean, it's like Woodstock. <laughs> I mean, it's outdoors. It's the summertime or, or early fall. And it's like, there's, 25,000 people here, you know, in the middle of a parking lot to see Stevie Ray Vaughan in Double Trouble. I mean, you, you know, it's like, it's hard for me to get my head around it because I saw him at the Rome Inn, you know, and I, you know, I saw him play with Cracker Jack. I saw, him, I mean, Reese, Reese was in a band with me when Stevie stole him, you know, I yeah. mean, recording Soul to Soul and they came down to our Eric, uh, Eric show at Fast and Cool Club and, 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 you know, I told Stevie in the alley behind the club, I said, hey, man, don't steal my keyboard player. Because Reese was playing with me and Chris Holzhouse and Andy Solomon in another band. He said, well, that'd be his that'd be his decision. I was like, oh, man, it's over, you know. <laughs> so to see Reese and Tommy, I've known Tommy my whole life, you know, and Chris Whipper's up there and Stevie. And this is, there's 25,000 people. It's like a zoo. It's like, oh, my God, these guys are mega. You know, I just had no idea. I mean, I did, but until it's in the, in your face, you just remember in the Rome end and thinking, how'd they get there? You know, it was a lot of work. It's hard work is what it was. And a damn good band and, and a bunch of, bunch of good guys, all of them were, yeah. I just, it's interesting because they become, you know, when anybody dies young and tragic, he, he's, he's become a myth in a way. Well, um, and you know, I mean, and he's probably, you know, I, I yeah, it happens. You know, you're going to be you're you're going to be catapulted into that mythical uh, world for sure. And and you can't take anything away from Stevie, but it's like, I mean, it, it, it's a it's a self perpetuating hype that just goes on ad infinitum. It's just huge, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, uh, it's a it's a weird way to have to to achieve that kind of uh, status. And I don't know it's really hard to say if he would have had that kind of recognition had the tragedy not happened, but he certainly would be, uh, have grown to be more and more well-known worldwide anyway, you know, cause he Absolutely. was that good. Well, I think yeah. that's what your, your friend that passed away with the drunk driver stuff. I think one of the biggest things that always is really hard and hurtful, you know, he, he was 35 years old when he died. Yeah. Um, his brother's still playing out live. He was just oh, in know. Kansas city not too long ago. It just always makes you wonder what he would have done and how he would have grown. You know, it's like anything. You evolve as but, a musician and the older you get. You'd be curious to see where it would have gone. That's part well, of the sadness. That's definitely true. And, and, you know, and because of his, you know, because of his, he was in recovery and he had really made a lot of changes in his life. I, I did after that gig in New York City, I got to spend an evening with him and Chris. Um, 
on a night off. And I mean, it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life because I mean, I didn't know Steve that well, but we had a closeness anyway. You know, I mean, we, we, you know, we just, it was almost like you didn't need the words or anything. It's like, we just, you know, we had a relationship, even if we didn't have one, you know, uh, it was kind funny. Of a band of brothers thing, right? Well, yeah, it's like, it's yeah. weird because I mean, I, Steve was in business meetings with CBS and management and, and uh, you know, we we're trying to go to dinner and it's New York and, but they're really running late. And um, I'm a vegetarian. I have been for a long time and it's like, I don't, I'm cool with that. I can just deal with it. You know, it's like a lot of people aren't. So it's like, it's not really, I, I don't want people to go out of the way to accommodate me, you know? Uh, and so, but my options are, are oftentimes drying up. Uh, a non-vegetarian can go anywhere and eat. I got to have someplace that's going to cater to that. So the whole time, I'm sitting with Chris. We're at the Morgan. They're staying at the Morgan in Midtown. I said, man, you know, I can run out and grab something to eat real quick, you know, and, and that way, you know, you guys can go over where you want, you know, when, when, whenever the thing happens. I know Stevie's running late and stuff, but I don't want to be a burden on anybody. And I said that about three or four times. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. It'll just be a few more minutes. And it's getting pretty late, and I'm, I'm getting kind of worried. And I said it one more time. Chris said, hey, man, would you cut it? Stevie's the one that wants to go down and eat vegetarian food with you at Spring Street. I'd just as soon go have barbecue. <laughs> and I'm going like, oh, wow. So I'm waiting for him because he wants to go where I'm wanting to go. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and it was really amazing. And, and so we, we opted to walk to the village, which is a pretty good trek from 31st. Yeah. Uh, and the box get really, really long. And, and like, he was going like, yeah, you know, if you guys wanted to get a cab or something, you know, I, I, I'd be cool with that. I'd pay for it. I was going like, no, man, I'm digging the walk, man. Let's just chill. Let's walk. We're having fun. You know, it's okay. Cause I don't want to be putting him out, you know? And, sure. and so this is, we go down there and we eat and it's real cool. We're having a great time. And, you know, and, and so we're walking back, same thing. He says, you know, do you think you guys want a cab? I can get one, you know? And I'm, I'm still thinking, well, no, man, I'll just walk. It's a long way, but it's kind of enjoyable and I don't want to, extra hassle you know finally stops says man i think we need to get a cab man and i said oh, okay okay cool he said yeah man I, I got this brand new pair of cowboy boots and i've been breaking them in and i've got these huge blisters on my feet from all this walking i don't think i can mm. walk it i was Are like just too nice to say anything yeah just too nice to say anything. Wow. is that that was him and that was the essence at the end is like he was so humble and so into being just really at peace with everything and not wanting to cause any kinds of issues or any, I mean, he was just, it was a whole different world for him. And I'd seen him when it was to the point where you could, he'd come to the drum shop with Chris and he'd just sit in the corner and not say anything. You know, it was just that far gone. And he was, he was lit, man. He was just high on life and so into helping people see their way clearly and, and, uh, and being a, being a, mentor figure and being able to be there for people as an artist and, and, and entertainer and, and just a, he was just a great guy really a great guy um i don't i think i'll never forget that evening you know because it just was so fantastic uh new york is real special but being there with chris and stevie at that time was especially considering he was gone pretty quickly after that you know? yeah well, I, I appreciate you indulging me like i said he's the reason why i picked up the guitar and it's one of those when you have somebody who's that important to you musically in your life you just never let go so i know uh, we're here to talk about your album but i really appreciate you oh no no my so. pleasure man i mean it's all part of the history it's all part of what makes everything end up being what it is you know uh, 
every every little piece of, of the history adds into how I got where I'm I'm going, wherever that is, you know. So people that are here listening to you and, and getting to know you and the album, and and I will I will say it's it's great. Please take a listen to it. I really enjoyed it. It was interesting. And when I listened to it before, I looked at any of your, your press pieces and, and I was like, who does this voice kind of sound like? And I was kind of like, not exact, but I feel it's like I was like, there's a little Jackson Brown in this guy's voice. And then I read your press piece and that's the person, the same thing I read. So that's pretty, that's a pretty nice compliment. Jackson Brown's a great singer. Well, he is, he's a great songwriter. You know, yeah. that's the thing. Um uh it's interesting because you know, I, I don't think a lot of the people that that hear the record, that, that, uh, it's going to confuse some people that know me because, you know, I, I, I was always known as more of a, a loud rock singer. You know, I've got a pretty high range and uh, I gravitate a lot towards more R&B based rock singers. Like, I mean, I was I'm obviously, I mean, you know, totally archetypically Paul Rogers. Um, there was a time when I could, I don't have his voice. I, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the exact instrument that he has, but I can, I know his phrasing and his, his intimacy is very, very well. And I can do a pretty convincing Paul Rogers. Um, I don't do that here. <laughs> That's not what it's. And it's not, a, it's not because I didn't want to. I mean, um, we might get into that at some point. I just don't know but, those are the songs that I wrote and that's how they were sung because that's what they were. Um, and, and they're kind of singer songwriter. I, I like, um, I love Jackson Brown. I mean, I, it's funny because that everyone says that, that hears it. And it's like, you know, I never, and no offense to Jackson Brown at all. I just, I love his music, but I'm, I'm only familiar with it at arm's length. I never bought Jackson Brown albums and stunned them like I might've done with other artists. That's not to say they're not valid or that I don't like them enough to do that. It's just not one that I did. Uh, I played a lot of those songs in cover bands and stuff, but uh, you know, um, I love, um, I love the early Elton John records. Oh yeah. Uh, first album in Tumbleweed Connection, Mad Man Across the Water, those yeah. three. And so songwriting wise, he and Bernie, I think, it didn't get much better than that. So that's uh, a bar. And I like, I do have some of that. I can hear some of that. And with Omarion's piano playing, I'm going to do a lot of that too. Um, yeah. Uh, people have said, uh, yeah, um, Jackson, I can't remember some of the other, other uh, things that people have said that, that, that the voice sounds like, but it's, uh, but, but, you know, like I said, people, some people expect me to do Sam and Dave songs. It's, it's not, that's maybe next, maybe later, you know? That's great. So do, are you, I know you're on Facebook anywhere. I'll put this all in the show notes. People can follow you, Tommy. Uh, where can people that hear this and are intrigued to learn more about you and, and to follow your music? What's the best well, way for them to keep in touch with you? Uh, you know, I'm on Facebook. That's my, that's probably my biggest social media preference because it's, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's for people our age. I, I navigate it better. I like it because I can say more. Uh, you know, I can write longer. Instagram is, uh, it's a little difficult for me because sometimes I, I just have, it's hard for me to think of anything really quick and spurty to say, you know, and, and so, uh, but I am on Instagram. I am on uh, Facebook. I have a brand new website that I just launched finally, uh, TommyTaylor.com. That's pretty easy to find. And uh, the music's there. Um, direct for, if somebody wants to do, if, if anybody's still doing downloads, you can directly download tracks or the album there. Um, I'm going to have some more of the, of the album, album artwork up there soon, I hope. And, um, there'll probably be some historical photos and stuff, you know, that kind of website kind of stuff. 
sure. you know, there where people can check that out. So that's that's where I'm at. Um, songs out. I mean, the song and the album. Uh, Everybody's gonna let you down. Is kind of the lead track at this point. That's out um, and getting some action at radio. The album is also out on all the streaming platforms. If anybody's into streaming, pretty easy to find. So uh, Amazon is there, Spotify, Tidal. I've got a new Atmos mix coming of Everybody's Gonna Let You Down. I got a friend of mine did an Atmos mix for me, so that, that should be fun. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm gonna do that. Well, it sounds great. It's been really fun talking to you. Really dig the album. Uh, I've been, dude, I've been following you since I've got Zap on cassette. Wow, uh, <laughs> awesome, cool. Yeah, I just posted and I bought that album totally because I was like, who's this weird dude with spiky hair? Oh, he's holding a strat. You know, where that you were when you were young and like you didn't know there's no internet. So you're just like, what the hell? I'll buy this. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, man. That's how I bought most of the records. I, I took a lot of, I bought a lot of records on chance. I brought, uh, I bought Johnny Winter's Progressive Blues Experiment because I liked the picture of his face reflected in a chrome guitar. I'd never yeah. seen it. It's like, I'll buy that, you know, so I get it for sure. Yeah, um, I just posted the uh, original promo video for Zap today on my Facebook page. Which is pretty I'll have to check it out. I'm still trying to figure out how to play that right. So it's a it's Well, a Eric hurt. had to go figure out how to play it. That was a jam, basically. You know, that was like the 25th take or something that we finally did. And he had to go back and say, okay, well, now we're going to do a video of an instrumental. It's like, well, that means every note has got to be exactly what it is that you played. I had to go back and learn all those fills that were just completely random to play them exactly in sync with the. And R Reggie, our bass player at the time, didn't play the solo on the record. He had to go back and learn the bass solo note for note because what are you going to do in a video on a bass solo but show the bass? Right. <laughs> it was pretty crazy, but yeah. Well, have a fun. nice night, Tommy. Told if you're ever in Kansas City, please look me up. I would love to take you out for a, a meal. I'm a vegan, so we can go oh, cool. really cool places. <laughs> That's awesome because I might be in Kansas City. I would have no idea at this point where to go. As, uh, what, was that, what was that place? Uh, oh, it's a it's a Mediterranean place we used to go. Jerusalem to. Cafe. Oh, uh, <laughs> I can have the I, I can taste the baklava now. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's still there, man. Cool. They have a great lentil soup, too. Yeah, well, we'll have to do it. Tommy Taylor, everybody. Again, the new album is out wherever you get your music in 2023. Check it out. I did put down in the show links how you can follow Tommy. Uh, really enjoyed that. Tommy was a nice guy. Uh, always, It's always fun to talk about. I mean, Stevie Ray is why I picked up the guitar. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that. Uh, but it was so nice to hear you know those firsthand experiences with Stevie. So thanks to Tommy. That's going to do it. Okay. Uh, I've got My next episode is going to be in December. Uh, it's going to be with uh, Joseph Burka and, of course, Corey Glover of Living Color fame. I'm so stoked about this. Uh, so we're going to be chatting. That's going to come out in December, and then I'm taking the break, as I said, in January, February, and then I'll be back in March. So until then, go out, support live music. We will talk real soon. Bye-bye.
1993 The worst that it could be The streetlights held that you'd be leaving soon Then that December day You didn't come out to play The stars 